You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 14. That song reminds me of um, a funeral that I did years ago um, where this lady had passed away. She was in her 80s, and her and her husband had been married for a long, long time, and um, the husband wanted to share during the funeral, and I knew that was going to be a very hard thing for him to do, and I was sitting on the stage, and uh, when it was his turn, he walks up, and I, I've never heard anything more profound. I didn't know how long he was going to share. I think he took maybe one minute. Um, but I'll never forget what he said. He said that uh, being as married as long as they have and that oneness that comes with marriage, he said that his entire marriage to his wife, that any time that he thought about her, he automatically thought about Jesus. I want you to think about that. The song we just sung. That your life is so enveloped into Christ that the way you live, the way you talk, the way you love, that when people think about you, they can't help but think about Jesus. It's a pretty powerful thought, isn't it? I don't know about you, but if that can be said about my life or about your life when we breathe our last breath, can we all just agree that that's a life well lived? Yeah. Not how much money he had in the bank, not how much she had in her 401k, not how many houses she had, but, but her life so mirrored Christ that you couldn't think about one without thinking about the other. That's exactly what we're going to wrestle with today in the book of James. So let's pick it up in verse 14. James says this, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When, we, when she received the messengers and sent them by, out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, we, we pause and we just say thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your steadfast love. Father, I have given you 
a thousand reasons and more to turn your back on me, to give up on me, to pull your love back from me, to no longer extend grace. Father, I have missed the mark so many times and I have failed so many times and I have messed up so many times that I've given you a laundry list on reasons not to love me. But Father, what makes your grace so amazing and what makes your love so different than, than the world is that you've never given up on me even one time. You've never turned your back on me even in my worst moments. The places where I have failed you, you have never failed me. The promises that you have made me that, that says that your mercy is fresh and new every morning, that, that when I seek you for forgiveness and, and when I turn from my wicked ways, that you take my sin and you cast them as far as the east is from the west, and although I bring them up, you never do. Although I dwell on the past, in your mind, the past and my mistakes don't exist anymore. So Father, I am deeply grateful for that kind of grace and love and mercy. For without it, I'd be in miserable shape. So Father, this morning we exalt your name because your name is worth exalting. We worship you this morning because there's nothing worthy more of worship than you. And Father, we remember the pit you brought us out of. We remember the brokenness. We remember how far we were from you. We remember the dark places we were in. And Father, we remember that you came to those dark places and you showed us mercy and you showed us grace and you gave us the opportunity for a brand new life. So Father, we worship you this morning. Father, guide us in your word what James has to say to us, what you inspired him to say to us is challenging. So Father, I pray that my own weaknesses and my own failures will not get in the way of what you need said here today. So Father, begin the work in our hearts even now and guide us in your word today that we may glorify you. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I want you to imagine this morning that we come to a place in our country where our faith is outlawed. It's not hard to imagine. There are places all over the world, North Korea, China, where it's against the law to follow Jesus, to pr pronounce your faith, to practice your faith. But imagine that that came here. Imagine that through a series of events and a whole lot of bad decisions that we come to a place where our faith becomes illegal and that the full force of the government, whether that be the SBI, the FBI, the local law enforcement, all of that power is turned towards the church and towards every person who says that they follow Jesus. And that people are actively being arrested and thrown in jail simply because they follow Jesus. And let's imagine that that's you. Let's imagine that one day on your house, on your door, somebody knocks, you open the door, and the law enforcement in full power is there at your door, and 
They're there to arrest you because you profess faith in Jesus Christ. They have some evidence that says that, that you're a follower of Jesus, so therefore they handcuff you. They take you to the local jail. They book you. They put you in jail. There's no bond given, so you're going to sit there in that jail till your trial day comes up. And after many months of trying to figure out what's going on, and you end up being brought before a judge and a jury of your peers. And you're sitting at the defense table. And you've got some court-appointed lawyers over here. And over here on this side, you have the prosecutors, the one who are representing the state. And their job is to prove to the court that you, in fact, are a Christ follower, that you, in fact, have broken the law, and that you should be put away for some number of years. So the evidence of whether you're a Christ follower or not falls to the burden of the prosecution to prove that very fact. So imagine the lawyer steps forward and says, I want to, I want to enter Exhibit A as evidence, and Exhibit A is your checkbook, your ledger of how you spend your money over the last five years. And the lawyer begins to argue based on the money that you're giving away because you're such a generous person that you're giving money to a local church, that you're giving money to Operation Christmas Child, and, and you've given money to, to people in need. And, and down through your ledger, you can see over and over again where even 20, maybe even 30% of your total income is being given away to people in need in the ministries that you support. That's pretty good evidence that this person may actually be a follower of Jesus. Well, then the lawyer says, we want to bring forth Exhibit B, and this is a coworker. And they call a witness forward, and they put that witness on the stand, and the lawyer begins to ask questions, and the lawyer asks the, the coworker, did you not have a, a time where you were in the break room with the defendant? And the defendant begins to talk about their love for Jesus, and, and over many conversations, they begin to share with you the gospel of this so-called Jesus Christ. Is this true? And this coworker begins to tell the courtroom that, yes, in fact, over the last year in the break room at lunch, you would get your Bible out and you would read. And there were times you would pray. And there were times that, yes, you would tell people that, that unless they put their faith in Jesus, that they would be lost for all eternity. The lawyer says, I want to bring up Exhibit C. He brings out a prayer journal that was on your person when you were arrested. And in that journal, it has years of where you've been walking through the Word and just writing down things that God was saying to you. And prayers that you were praying to God as you prayed the word back to God in, in those moments of devotion. So it looked like for at least the last five years, you've had a, a time almost every day where you've been alone with the Lord. That, that's what Christians do, right? And then exhibit D, they call a whole host of witnesses forward. And it's all your old friends. It's all those people that you used to run with back before you made that choice to put faith in Jesus. And all those people are brought up on the stand and they're asked all these questions about, this person lived just like you guys did. They lived just like anybody else. You know, they were partying with you and, you know, sharing all the vulgar jokes and maybe the people on the stand are talking about how you used to be. And then the lawyer asked, well, was there a point in time where there was a change in this person's life? Yes. As a matter of fact, he, he came to the ball field one day and said that he had found Jesus and that he was different. And that he wouldn't be hanging around with us as much as he used to. And then we noticed that 
He got connected to this church down the road. He just seemed like he was there all the time and he was serving the community. In other words, there was a point in time where your old friend said he used to be this way, but then something changed and he's never been the same since. He doesn't hang out with us like he used to. He doesn't tell the dirty jokes he used to. He doesn't, he's just different. So the lawyer brings all of this evidence forward that this person sitting at the defense table, which is you, by the way, that says this person is actually a Christ follower. There is something about his or her life that is different. Let me ask you a question. If it were you sitting at that defense table and the prosecution is bringing their case, would there be enough evidence for the jury to convict you of Christianity? Would there be enough to say, yeah, she loves Jesus? Or would the whole courtroom really be confused as to who you really are? James, in this text that we're looking at, deals with this very issue. In the book of James, the word faith is used 16 times in this little small letter, 16 times. But get this, 11 of those 16 times are right here in the text that we're dealing with this morning, 11 times right here. I've told you before that when you're reading God's Word and you see repetition in God's Word, you need to really pay attention to that. Well, we really need to pay attention to what James is saying about true, authentic faith this morning. 16 times in the entire letter, 11 times in this text, but get this, eight of these times that faith is used, James uses it in reference to an imaginary person. Now, James is a colorful writer. He, he helps us in his letter by giving us these tangible illustrations to help us kind of process what he's saying. And he does it in this text. And what he does is he says, there's this imaginary person who's going to bring an argument to the courtroom or to the debate. And here's what this person is saying. He's saying that he has faith, authentic faith, but has no works to back that up. So James says, is, is this saving faith? Is faith that saves you a faith that has no evidence of a changed life? Is that saving faith? Or is saving faith a faith that has works, evidence that points to the, the life change that happened inside of you and then makes its way outside of your life into the people around you? James is going to proclaim, and we're going to see it very clearly today, that either a person has saving faith or dead faith. James is not making a comparison in this text. There, there are people who think he's making a comparison between those with mature faith versus people who have immature faith, but both have saving faith. That is not what James is arguing in this text. James is saying there's one of two possibilities. You either have saving faith that has evidence that you have truly been born again, or you have dead faith and you're lost. So let's take a look at verse 14. He starts out by saying, and he comes out, James comes out swinging here. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, the person who says, I know God, the person who says, I know who Jesus is, the person who says, I know that Jesus hung on a cross and I know that he resurrected, I know all of these things intellectually. But when you look at his or her life, there's been absolutely no change. Now, you know people. You've, you've got family. You've got friends. 
who at some point seemed to have made some kind of profession of faith in Jesus, but a little bit of time goes by and we see that there's absolutely no change in their life. In other words, there's nothing different. There's no evidence in their life that there's ever been any kind of heart change, new birth, new life. James says, what good is it to say that we have something, to say with our mouth that that we have faith in Jesus, but have no evidence to back that up whatsoever. James says that it's useless. Notice what he says. He gives us, he gives us a little deeper insight here in verse 15. He says, take for example, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So, Let me just kind of break down what James is saying here. James is saying, and notice this, he says a brother or sister. He's talking about people within the church, people who have come to a saving faith in Jesus and are part of the body of Christ. He says, let's imagine that a person says, this imaginary person says, I have faith, but I have no works. That person looks at someone else in need within the body of Christ, sees that they're poor, sees that they don't have any food, sees that their clothes are falling off, sees that they're homeless, and goes up to that person and says, well, good luck with that. Hope it all works out. James says the person who has dead faith doesn't love or seek to help those within the body of Christ. So as one tangible evidence, a care for one another within the body of Christ. Get this, if we're not loving each other within the body of Christ, how in the world are we going to love a lost and dying community that is far from Jesus? It's not going to happen. If we can't love each other and take care of one another within the body of Christ, there is no way we're going to be able to love that neighbor who doesn't even know who Jesus is. James says that authentic faith is a faith within the body of Christ that looks out for one another, loves one another, blesses one another. Why would James bring that particular, I mean, there's a thousand things he could have said there. Why did he say that? In this early church, James is the pastor of the church, New Testament church of Jerusalem, the very first church. That church that we see in Acts 2 is that church that blows up and grows into thousands of people within the city of Jerusalem. And James, Jesus' half-brother, is the pastor of that church. Now, what are we seeing within the Jerusalem church? We're seeing the poorest of the poor be the ones who put their faith in Jesus first. Ahead of the scholars, ahead of the Pharisees, ahead of the Sadducees, who do we see in the early church coming to faith in Christ? It's broken people, people who have nothing. And they come into the body of Christ, and guess what happens? Those within the body of Christ who have wealth begin to sell off their own stuff to help these brothers and sisters who have nothing. Barnabas sells off some property to be able to give to those inside the church as an act of love. James says that the most basic, authentic aspect of faith, authentic faith, is love. And what easier place to love than right here in the body of Christ? And if we can't do it here, we won't do it out there. He says... That faith, authentic faith, has works associated with it. Verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself does not have works. It is dead. In other words, 
A dead faith, a faith that will not save you, a faith that will not bring you into light is a faith that when looks at other people in need, simply scoffs at it and walks on. Notice what he says next, verse 18. Here's this imaginary person again. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So this imaginary person wants to get into a debate with James. So James has kind of painted this caricature of a person who says, I've got faith without works. So James says, okay then, if you have faith with no works, show me your faith. Show me your faith in Jesus. And notice what James says next. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. You know what James is saying here in this debate with this imaginary person? James says, you have no way to authenticate your faith because you have no works of a changed life. James says, let me point at some things over here in my life. Now, James is not bragging. James is not being like super egotistical here. James is simply saying that when I met Jesus, when I gave him my life, when I surrendered to him, he made a difference in my life that is tangible that you can see. Not that I'm perfect. Not that I have it all together. Not that I've arrived but I'm not who I used to be. I was once this, and now I'm this. I was once broken, and now I've been made whole. I was once someone who used, I'm just, I'm not saying James says that, but just as an example. I was once someone who used foul language. Every other word was using the Lord's name in vain. Now, I didn't have the ability to stop that, but when I put my faith in Jesus, God did a work in me, and you know what? I haven't used that in 20 years. That's a tangible work. Before I came to faith in Christ, my person might say, before I came to faith in Christ, I despised this group of people because of the color of their skin. I couldn't fix that. But Jesus did a work in me through the Holy Spirit and being connected to the church that, you know what? I have a love for those people just like anyone else. Tangible works that accompany authentic faith. James is going to help us with this argument in verse 19. Look what he says. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's James saying? James is saying between him and this imaginary person, he says, okay, when this person comes to the debate who has only faith but no works, what argument are they going to bring to the table? So in the courtroom, the person who doesn't have saving faith, the person who simply has faith with no works, what kind of evidence are they going to try to put forth in the courtroom to prove that they are in fact a Christ follower but have no works to back that up? Here's what they're going to do. Well, I have a whole lot of knowledge I know about the Trinity, and I know about Jesus, and I know about his parables, and I know about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I, I have all these facts. I know what happened with Israel, and I, and I know what happened with the disciples, and I've got dates, and I've got facts, and I've got maps, and I've got data, and I've got information. I know the name of Jesus. I know we celebrate Christmas and his birth, and I know we celebrate his resurrection at Easter. They know all of these facts, but they have never had a life change. And folks, let me stress to you how dangerous this is because I'm concerned that in the good old Bible Belt, the South, there are people walking around with a head full of knowledge and a heart cold and indifferent and lost and on their way to hell. Keeps me up at night. Can it be possible that someone could be that close, 
Know all those things about Jesus but never been changed by it? Yeah, let me give you a name. Judas. Judas walked with Jesus three and a half years. Judas saw the miracles. Judas knew the facts. Judas could probably tell you the parables. But Judas died in his sins. And Judas is in a burning hell today. Is there a difference between knowing about Jesus and being changed by him? Absolutely. James says you either have saving faith or you have dead faith. Dead faith leads you to hell. Saving faith transforms you from the inside out, and the world can see the evidence of a changed life. I want to take you back. I think maybe, maybe James might have been thinking about this. I don't know. Go back to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I, I don't know that James was thinking about this. Maybe he was, but Jesus had several interactions, direct interactions with demon-possessed people. Now, before I read this text, let me just say on the front end, this is not a fable. This is not some story the disciples made up and put in the Gospels. And by the way, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. This is a real event in real time. And I want you to hear this interaction between Jesus and this demon. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea. This is Jesus and the disciples to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. An incredible, astonishing story. Jesus comes to this area called the Gerasenes. The different Gospels kind of present this area as a different name, not all that important. The point being is when he goes there, he's met by a guy who's absolutely out of his mind. If you read the other gospel accounts, there's different details that emerge, but basically the guy has no clothes on. He's filthy. He's running around like a wild man. He's almost like an animal. The, the townspeople have tried to bind him with chains to just to try, to try to find some protection from the people living there, just trying to do something with this guy. He was completely out of control, but they would shackle him, and he had supernatural strength through this demon possession, and he would, he would break the chains. Folks, this is not some kind of movie. This is real life happening here. So Jesus is met with this man right as he, as he gets off the boat. Now, notice what happens. Now, this guy was cutting himself. He's cutting himself with stones. I mean, just absolutely insane. Verse 6, and when he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So, so here the man who's out of his mind, running around crazy, sees Jesus, runs down to the shore, and basically falls on his face before Jesus. Now that's pretty strange. But it gets a whole lot stranger. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, we have a man possessed by a demon, but the voice we hear is the voice of the demon through the man. So yes, the man is speaking, but it's the voice of the demon that we're hearing. This is crazy stuff. But notice what this demon says. This demon says, 
What do you have to do? What are you going to do to me? What, what are you going to inflict upon me? And notice what the, the title that he uses. He says, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. This demon knows who Jesus is, his true identity. In this moment, we have a demon revealing the identity of Jesus Christ the righteous. And what does this demon reveal? The demon reveals that Jesus is the Son of of the living God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had not even got to that point. Many of them never would. Even at the point where Jesus is crucified and resurrected, there are Pharisees and religious rulers who never accept that Jesus is Messiah, who never accept that Jesus is God, who never accept that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet this demon immediately recognizes Jesus for who he is. Isn't that amazing? Some of you still haven't recognized Jesus for who he is. But this demon has. Why is that? Look, look at what he says. He says, I adjure you or I make an oath to God. In other words, this demon is crying out to God out of fear of what Jesus might do to him. Now, what do we see here? We see the demon showing reverence to Jesus because of who he is. This demon is afraid because he knows what Jesus is capable of. So we have reverence. We have, we have a demon calling out to Jesus for mercy. We have a demon casting himself down before Jesus in worship and, 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 and recognizing Jesus for who he is. Scared of what Jesus can do. And he says, please do not torment me. Does that make this demon a disciple of Jesus? This is James's argument. That's ludicrous, isn't it? Of course not. This demon has a whole lot of knowledge about who Jesus is because apparently this demon knows that in eternity past who Jesus is. And in that moment, he recognizes and vocalizes who Jesus is. But friends, I think we can all admit, and this is our James's argument, this does not make that demon born again. Why is that? Because the demon had a whole lot of facts there's no way there's ever going to be any works to back up any kind of change of life. That demon recognizes Jesus for who he is. And there are a whole host of people who with their, the words of their mouth recognize who Jesus is. They say that Jesus is God. They say that Jesus is authority. They say that Jesus is the King of Kings. They say that Jesus is Savior. They say that Jesus is Messiah. But yet, all they've ever had is a head knowledge and it's never moved 18 inches of their heart and changed their life. And they live their whole life with a faith that is dead, a faith that they hope is going to take them into the kingdom, only to find out that they're just as lost as anyone else. Listen, folks, more knowledge about Jesus, more facts about Jesus will not save you. Checking boxes on a slip of paper will not save you. Faith is what saves you, and then authentic faith is followed by works. Change life. Ask you a few questions just to kind of process this. Something, a few things to consider. In what ways has your life changed since you put your faith in Jesus? I know that some of you maybe came to faith when you were young. Maybe you were nine, ten years old. You don't even remember kind of what all that was about. That's fine. But how's your life changed as you have grown to know who Jesus is? Has it changed? 
You see, I am much more concerned about has your life changed than what memory you have of a moment you walked an aisle or a vacation Bible school. I am not all that concerned that you remember all the details. I'm not all that concerned whether you remember the, the day and the time. I'm not so concerned about whether Just As I Am is playing or some other hymn. I'm not so concerned about what the preacher said. I'm not so concerned about the words you prayed. What I am most concerned about is has your life changed? If you're in the courtroom, is there evidence to convict? That's what I'm concerned about. And you should be too. Let me ask you another question. What, what victories over sin has Christ given you? Right? I mean, there was a time before Christ where you had some real brokenness in your life. But you can look back at that and you go, you know what? I don't even have a problem with that anymore. God has delivered me from that. I don't, I don't struggle with that anymore. What about this? What have you had to give up to follow Jesus? That should be a pretty easy one. You should be able to just rattle them off. This is some things I had. I I could not follow Jesus and keep carrying these things. I could not follow Jesus and keep this addiction. I could not follow Jesus and continue to consume this entertainment. I could not follow Jesus and continue to treat my spouse this way. I could not follow Jesus and treat my kids this way. I could not follow Jesus and treat my boss man or my coworkers this way. I could not follow Jesus and use that kind of language. I could not follow Jesus and drink myself into oblivion every day. I had to give it up. And Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, gave me the ability and the freedom and the power to say no to that. What is that in your life? Do you have anything? That would be evidence in the courtroom. James is going to give us some case studies here, some people to look at. If you want to know what saving faith looks like, well, he goes back in the Old Testament. Look at verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Now he's talking to this imaginary person again. He says, do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac on the altar. James in this argument with this imaginary person who says he has faith but no works. James says, well, here, I've got works to authenticate by faith. But hey, just in case you don't believe me, let's go back and take a look at Abraham. So Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and Sarah were wanting a child. You know part of the story. And and they couldn't have a child. God comes along and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And part of that covenant is you're going to have children. Well, through a long series of events, um, Abraham, when he's 100 years old, he and Sarah, is 99, have a child from their own body. Incredible. They named that son Isaac. Laughter is what his name means. What an occasion to laugh, right? I mean, having a child at that age. This child grows up, and we don't know, in Genesis 22, some people say that Isaac might have been as young as 10, some as old as 16. Let's just say he's 13, preteen, and let's go with that. This promised son that God miraculously gave to Abraham and Sarah, whom the covenant promises is going to flow through this son. What were those promises? Well, you're going to have a land, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, and by the way, you're going to have so many children, so many offspring that... It's going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. Well, it all hinges upon the kid named Laughter. 
And then one day God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him up on that mountain over there, and I want you to sacrifice him. I can't imagine what ran through Abraham's mind at that moment. Can you imagine all the questions he would have had? That doesn't make any sense at all. But one of the things that really drives me crazy sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I don't know if this bothers you, but it bothers me sometimes, God will give a command to somebody, some of these patriarchs in the Old Testament, and you know what they do? They just get up and do it. I wish they would have some like internal struggle that I could know about or, or some kind of like wrestling and arguing with the Lord. But with Abraham in this particular story, now we see some of that in other places, but here what we see, what does Abraham do? Abraham gets up and he gathers some wood and he gets some fire and he, and he gets a knife and he gets a servant and last but not least, Isaac. He says, come on, come on, son. So they start making this journey to the mountain. Well, as any... 13-year-old boy who's inquisitive. He's got to ask the question. And you know it's burning in his mind because I see the fire, I see the wood, I see the knife, and typically when we're doing sacrifices, there'd be an animal here, right? There'd be some sheep that we're leading with us. I'd be holding the reins maybe, but, but, but I don't see that, Father. So, Dad, where is the sacrifice? What's going on here? And Abraham says to Isaac, one of the most... Powerful moments of the Old Testament. He looks at his son and he says, son, God himself will provide. It almost sounds like that, that Abraham is completely, recklessly, in some ways of thinking, trusting a holy God. It's almost as though Abraham says, okay, God says it. I'm going to do it. Even though I don't understand it, I'm going to act on this, and God's going to, God's going to work this out. And you see, as, as Abraham and Isaac are walking up one side of the mountain, guess what's walking up the other side? A ram. And they're going to meet at the top of this mountain, and Abraham is going to draw that knife, and he is going to slaughter his only son. The promised one. And as he draws that knife up, God speaks and says, wait. Jeram caught in a thicket. You know what God did? God provided a sacrifice. Now what's the point of that story? It would be easy for Abraham to say, oh, I trust God. Oh, I believe in God. Oh, oh, I have faith in God. But as James would argue, where's the evidence of your faith? And for Abraham, what would it be? A whole host of things. Specifically, on this mountain, he gets the wood, he gets the fire, he takes his son, and he goes out in faith. That faith that he says that he has, has made tangible in the works that he's doing. James says, that's saving faith. That's faith that'll transform you. He says that there's another person in the Old Testament by the name of Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was loyal to her countrymen until she heard about the God of the Israelites who were just outside the walls. She hears about this God and she puts faith in God. And then when the Israelites send some spies into her city because they're getting ready to take that city, when they send spies in there, she takes care of those spies, protects them, hides them, sends them out so they don't get caught. She commits treason against her own people because of faith in God. So faith... Without accompanying works is dead faith. Now, James is going to raise a big problem here, and we got to deal with it this morning. 
And here's the problem. Look at verse 24. He says, you see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, wait a minute. That throws a big monkey wrench or supposedly a big monkey wrench in our, our whole understanding of what salvation is. You've heard your whole life. Or maybe you're here today for the very first time. Maybe you're going to hear it for the first time. We understand clearly from the New Testament and the Old Testament that we can't work our way into heaven. In other words, just by simply being a good person. Being a good person, being generous, being all these things doesn't make you right with God. But, but now wait a minute, in James saying that very thing, James is saying it, and he's saying that works, works is what brings about righteousness. In other words, a right relationship with God. Is James not saying here that if we'll just be good people, We'll have lots of works that will all be okay. Well, the problem gets worse when you go over and read some of Paul's writings. You go over to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says as clearly as James is saying this, Paul says this just as clearly. He says that no human being can be justified by works. Martin Luther, you know, uh, Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said that the book of James was like a pile of straw. In other words, it had no substance to it. And, and Martin Luther wrestled much of his life between salvation by faith or salvation by works. And he, he saw James and Paul as just button heads, that they're completely, well, contradicting one another. Well, I'm not as smart as Martin Luther, but I'm going to tell you why they don't contradict. Okay? See that word justified there? That word justified, Greek word behind it, in your English translation says justified, or in other places it may say justification, or justifies, same Greek word. That Greek word can have two different meanings. So let me, let me explain this, so stick with me here. We'll dive into some theology here, it's okay. Justification can have two different meanings. The first meaning, let me explain the first one. The first one is that moment when a person puts their faith in Jesus, that moment where they come to the end of themselves, they repent, turn from their old life, believe in Jesus, and they become saved or they experience the new birth. In that moment, the Bible teaches us very clearly that we are justified. We have experienced justification. What does that mean? It means that before we were born again, God's wrath was coming towards us. In other words, God was going to judge us, God was angry, and God was going to put us in a place of torment for all eternity if we didn't respond to the gospel. So God's wrath is focused on us. At the very moment we put our faith in Jesus, God's wrath turns away. And get this, not only does God's wrath turn away, God declares you righteous. Get this. If you are born again, you are a saint. Wow. I know it didn't feel like it. I know most days it doesn't feel that way with me. But here's the reality. God declared something about you. We call it justification. God said in that moment, you are perfect. How could that be? You've heard me use this illustration before. I'll use it again because I think it helps. When I was a kid, I would go into my dad's closet, take out one of his suit coats, and put it on. Oh, I'd stand in front of the mirror, and it's all big and floppy, right? Didn't feel right, didn't fit. But nonetheless, I had the coat on. 
The very moment you put your faith in Jesus, God put a cloak of righteousness on you. Not your righteousness, but his son's. He enveloped you in perfection. Not your perfection, but Jesus's. He enveloped you into, well, an adopted son or daughter. Now, it didn't really fit. We had to grow up into that. So I had to grow up into that suit coat. It still doesn't fit really well. Dad's shoulders are a little bit broader than mine, so it still doesn't fit. But I'm growing up into that. So God declares something about us that we spend the rest of our life living out through mistakes, at times being obedient, other times being disobedient. But God declares us righteous. Now, that's one aspect of justification. But get this, there's another aspect of justification or another way to use this word. The other way is the display of righteousness, the exhibition of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if the first aspect of it is God declaring we're righteous, the second aspect of it is how we live our life after that fact. So what James is saying here is we don't do works to gain salvation. We do works as a result of salvation, and it becomes the evidence of our true transforming faith. Paul says we can't work our way into heaven. He's right. James says our works after we become right with God is evidence of our faith. They're not contradicting one another. They're just talking about two aspects of our walk with Jesus. Paul talking about the salvation moment James talking about our walk with him in life. And James says, if there's no works, no evidence to accompany our faith, then our faith is dead. Notice what else he says here in verse 26. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James summarizes everything he's saying in the argument that he's had with this imaginary person. So we land the plane here. Every person in this room has one of two kinds of faith, saving faith or dead faith. Dead faith talks about all the knowledge that we know about Jesus. Talks about all the things that we've learned. Talks about the fact that we're a part of a Baptist church. Talks about the fact that, that we are a member but on Monday, Sunday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, they live just like the world. So if they're in the courtroom, if they're, if they're in the courtroom, and there's no tangible evidence to point to the fact that that person is a Christ follower, guess what? The jury's going to rule. There's not enough evidence here to convict this person. I mean, they, they, when we look at their life, there's no difference between this person and the rest of the world. So we can't convict this person of being a Christ follower because there's no evidence that points to that reality. That's where some of you are today. You're clinging to knowledge. You're clinging to data. You're clinging to information. You're clinging to church membership. But there is no evidence in your life whatsoever that you've been born again. And you're wrestling with that. You're struggling with it. This whole idea of joy and peace, this whole idea of freedom in Christ, you've never experienced it because you've never been changed by it. There's always something missing, isn't there? And if you were put on trial, the jury would conclude he can't be a Christ follower. But then there's some of you who look back at your life and you go, you know what? Well, I'm still messed up. <laughs> I still got a lot of stuff that it's just not where it needs to be. But boy, when I look back, I am not who I used to be. Is that who you are? Is that, 
Is that your faith? The faith that says, I was once this, but now I'm this. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I've got a lot. There's a lot more work the Holy Spirit's got to do, and I'm right there with you. But I don't struggle with that anymore. I don't wrestle with that anymore. I've moved on. Yes, I have evidence in my life that I've experienced a new birth. Where are you at on that? You either have saving faith or dead faith. What kind of faith do you have? Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, the beauty of it, but also, well, the, the difficulty of it at times and what it has to say to us. And Father, right now, we have to wrestle with the reality that some folks, maybe even here or watching online, some folks have had a big dose of religion, but no changed life. They maybe said a prayer, checked the boxes, walked an aisle. But as they look back across their life, maybe for the first time ever, they realize there is no authentic faith. There's no evidence of it. Just going through the motions. And Father, that is a very dangerous place to them for them to be. Because one day we're going to stand before you. And you're not going to give us a pop quiz on the knowledge we have. You're not going to give us a final entrance exam that if we score over 70%, then we're going to be welcomed into heaven. We're not going to be, you're not going to be reviewing us on the knowledge we have. You're going to be reviewing us on the works that we did. And there will be some there that day you'll look at it and say, I never knew you. And for the first time ever, they realized that they had a dead faith, not a saving faith. Father, may we come to that place of surrender now because we're not promised another day. Well, I pray that people would have the freedom here to move, to respond, to do exactly what you're calling them to do. So Father, we ask that you would speak person here who's online. Father, I pray that we be obedient in this moment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook, 